Welcome to Designers of Paradise, a podcast focused on people who are changing the ways in which we produce our food, care for our soil and water, and protect our climate. There's a steady flow of information now about the many ways in which agriculture is damaging our planet, disrupting natural ecosystems, polluting our air and water, and destroying the soil it depends on. But there's another set of stories to be told as well. These are the stories of the people dedicating their time and brilliance to reversing the impacts of our industrial food systems. From farmers and consumers to innovators and entrepreneurs, city planners and funders, an entire ecosystem of change makers is on the rise. Together, they're bringing in a next generation of agriculture, which is regenerating soils, food quality, local economies, and significantly, hope. Hope for a better, healthier, and more equitable future for all. These are the designers of paradise. These are people who see paradise as the natural condition of a world in balance, where our collective activity feeds the land and consciously works with nature to rebuild the abundance that supports all life, including our own. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm speaking today with Russell Wallach uh, in Amherst, Massachusetts, and um, we're going to be looking at carbon drawdown. We're going to be looking at the importance of watershed scale approaches to regeneration. And we're also going to be talking about the importance of design education, or at least the utility of a design education in this work. So welcome, Russell. Thanks, Eric. It's good to be talking to you today. Yeah, um, Russell and I have known each other. We haven't met in person, but we've known each other for several years now. And um, always really, really enjoy the conversations we, we end up having. And I'm so excited to hear from you recently about some work you've been doing with chestnut trees as well. Um, we'll come around to that in a little bit because that's a, been a long time passion of my own from my, my own days in New England. Um, maybe you could just give our listeners some personal background and segue that into what you're doing with Terragenesis, how, how that came to be. And I'm particularly interested in your own personal motivation to be doing this work. Sure, yeah. Um, so personal background, um, I'm culturally a New Yorker who grew up in New England. <laughs> um, was born in the city, only lived there for a little bit, but raised by proud New Yorkers. Um, and you know, I was actually really more interested in social justice for a long time than food justice. Uh, I think younger me didn't quite see all the connections and had a, a different focal point. Um, and probably around the time I was 18 or 19, started asking questions about how our food system worked and seeing how wasteful it was, how I, how I couldn't go to the grocery store and not produce a bunch of garbage, um, even if I ate every edible thing I bought. Um, and from there kind of started tracking back, like what is this history of agriculture that I interface with in the grocery store basically? And how, it, why is that manifesting itself in um, a very wasteful form of consumption? 
um, and kind of worked my way through agricultural history and started to get an understanding of some of the alternatives that people are putting out there and some of the alternatives that have been around for thousands of years aside from um, kind of what I'm used to seeing in the U.S. context. And eventually found out that there were people who get hired to design agricultural systems, um, particularly through the lens of ecological design and permaculture. Um, and through a series of connections was um, lucky enough to get to meet one of those people, uh, Ethan, formerly Roland, now Soloviev, um, and started apprenticing with his firm to get to learn, get kind of an experiential learning opportunity um, of both installing these designs, so planting trees and shrubs um, into kind of perennial agricultural systems, um, but also understanding kind of the design process behind that thinking and the, the approach of getting to know a landscape and um, kind of understanding what an agriculture of that, of that landscape looks like. Um, so that was kind of my way into all this work um, and, and my background and Eventually, I made my way to the Conway School here in Massachusetts, which, uh, Eric, that's how we met. And now the work I'm doing is a mix of things, a mix of um, starting my own um, chestnut farming projects here in Western Massachusetts, and then largely working with uh, TerraGenesis International, doing a mix of um, some different types of consulting projects, mostly with food and cosmetics brands. Um, trying to understand what the role they can play in um, multiple terms being used in this conversation, but generally language around carbon farming and regenerative agriculture and uh, those brands trying to understand how they can uh, work in a way that's complementary to both of those uh, projects. Well, that's the, a, a very dense, packed nugget of information there. <laughs> um, let's see if we can unpack it a little bit for our listeners. Sure. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit more about TerraGenesis itself. Uh, kind of expand that out and, and, and give us a sense of what the remit is and you know, who, who you work with and, and that sort of thing. Sure. Well, how many other sure. people on the team, for instance? That'd be also interesting. Yeah. So TerraGenesis um, started, and I hope I have my history right here, I believe it was in 2008, um, and it launched out of the first carbon farming course. Um, so um, at that time, five people came together, um, Mary Johnson, Eric Tonesmeyer, Gregory Landaway, Ethan Rowland, and Christian Shearer. Um, and they had a mix of backgrounds in biology, ecology, agriculture, holistic management, permaculture, and they came together to design landscapes generally for larger landowners um, across the world. Um, so one of the longest running projects TerraGenesis has is work with a retiring sand quarry um, in Barbados that needed to design a process to reforest that quarry and also was looking to design through some pretty forward thinking by the by the people working at that quarry needed to design a way that that could continue to offer employment opportunities and kind of economic value to that community aside from extracting sand um, and so that's that's a project that TerraGenesis got involved with I think in 2011 and um, is working less with now but um, 
It was about a five-year project. So that, that was, that's kind of the type of project TGI got started with um, around 2014 or so. Terragenesis started making a shift um, that still included that land-based work, but started to focus more on the natural products industry. So uh, cosmetics brands, so think of brand sourcing, uh, herbal extracts or essential oils or honey or um, chocolate. Uh, we had yeah, worked with a number of chocolate brands based on some of the work that a couple of my colleagues, mostly uh, Gregory Landaway and Luke Smith have done in uh, Central and South America. Um, so chocolate companies, cosmetics companies, um, we've worked with a few, uh, or some beverage companies, generally smaller brands, um, that the size of brand that we're working with has recently been growing. Um, and so that was, uh, let me take a pause and get back to the, the root of your question there. Um, so yeah, early on, it was kind of, the first few brands that we're starting to see, there's a way in which we can really be investing in shifting agricultural systems. Um, more recently, I'd say in the past two years, and really particularly in the past year, um, kind of in the natural products industry, there's been significant buzz around uh, carbon farming and what many folks are calling regenerative agriculture, although um, I only use that term in really specific situations because I think people are using it to mean 50 different things right now. And so it's important to have some discernment around um, a difference between carbon farming and regenerative agriculture, I think. Um, but maybe maybe that's a good maybe that's a good point for you to or a good moment for you to make that distinction. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the coming out of the school that I work in with kind of a specific understanding of regeneration that is based in some fairly ancient lineages, um, both from indigenous peoples here in the U.S. and kind of more ancient wisdom lineages across the world. Um, so, so many forms of ancient thinking that there's um, regeneration is is a paradigm, it's a way for us to begin to work in the way that the world works and not through the lenses um, maybe that humans apply to the world. So um, we could probably spend five podcasts talking about that. Um, what's really a really important principle of that work, um, of that lens, is understanding the uniqueness of living holes. So you and I, Eric, are, are both unique humans, but also every place that we work in is unique. Um, and so that to me, that, that's a, a major distinction when we're talking about regeneration versus carbon farming. Both are very necessary in this moment. Um, carbon farming though can mean a thousand different things, all of which are forms of drawing down carbon into the soil and above ground biomass, which is again, crucial um, and we could imagine a version of carbon farming that was based in slave labor and still largely ecologically destructive at a watershed level, um, but is, is net positive in, in the form of on-farm carbon. Um, and so I think there's, a, there's an importance to the distinction between designing solely for carbon and 
designing for um, the vitality of a unique place and the people working in that place and the communities that are dependent on that place. Beautifully put. I compl <laughs> completely agree. Um, I, you know, I wonder, I, I know that, um, you know, part of the, the kind of the culture, the, the learning culture um, at Conway School um, is, is really strongly focused on, on place. You know, the, the idea of creating place and, you know, conserving or, or curating place and uh, allowing those unique elements that make one place different and, and special uh, from any other place, allowing those elements to emerge and, and, and be embraced in the design process. Is that something that was new or reinforced for you in, in your study there? Or was that kind of something, mm. is this something you brought whole, you know, kind of in whole cloth as it were uh, with you? Because I don't hear this conver uh, I don't hear this conversation enough. I don't feel like I hear this distinction enough. Um, yeah. And in in this in the work on producing this series and in researching, uh, you know, cool people to talk to about great stories, um, I have seen a continuing convergence between land practices and community. Um, mm -hmm. regeneration, you know, recovery and, and, and rejuvenation of community and, and even extending it from there down to the regenerative uh, power that healing a community and a piece of land can have for the individual who engages themselves. So there's, there's kind of a continuum mm -hmm. there, you know, from like large scale, which we'll come into in a second, to local scale, um, to place itself to the community which is engages, engages with it and is a beneficiary of it to the individual. And it's, it's both artificial and kind of silly, you know, to, to try to like make too dry a distinction between those levels because there's a flow that happens. But mm, I, I, yep. am I am curious, I mean, this is something you and I, you know, definitely converge on uh, frequently. Um, in in our talks, and I'm I'm just kind of curious how long you've been carrying this this kind of commitment to place. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'd say so. I think it was it wasn't nascent in me that that way of thinking when I came to Conway, but it was young. Um, that said, I think I kind of still consider it young. <laughs> um, you know, I I I, I think. Um, I'm pretty clear that I was raised in a culture and went through an education system that doesn't do a great job of honoring complexity and generally tries to smooth things over. Um, and I think when, like when we're talking about that relationship to place or kind of embracing the uniqueness of living systems, um, what we're talking about is is at some level is also like being okay with the messiness that that comes with and, and some of the uncertainty from moment to moment that that comes with. Um, and that actually was really something I grew an appreciation for at the Conway School. Um, so for your listeners who aren't familiar with the program, it's entirely project-based. So um, clients hire the school to take on design projects and planning projects and the school um, 
the students essentially operate as uh, partners within the school's design firm and take on projects. Um, so what I, I think the biggest takeaway I had from that year was how messy a design process is and how, how much as a designer, in a lot of ways, you're, you're a social worker, you know, and you're, you're engaging with human relationships and these, this kind of ongoing iterative process. And you can come up with, with the most beautiful plan set. And if you haven't created kind of the, a culture that's willing to adapt that plan set, you know, as the situation changes, as the environment changes, as someone leaves your organization, um, that that plan set is really just kind of a, a nice aesthetic piece and, and not much more. So, so I think that's what, what mostly kind of, I won't say solidified, but really strengthened in me is, is an appreciation that all of this work that we're talking about is relational and it's relational to systems that are on the move constantly. Um, and so as much as designing about place feels like home, it's also like, it's also about kind of having this relationship to home where your home is changing and you have to kind of change with it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you're following. Is, is that making sense? How I'm playing it, to, to, to me, it makes complete sense. <laughs> and, and, and it's, it's nice, you know, it's nice to be remembering my own experience there, which was so much, so much earlier than yours because we're quite different ages. Um, but when I put together my CV, you know, and I talk about what I learned and what I, what I like, my focus when I was studying at Conway, um, I always add in uh, environmental psychology. Mm. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, you know, often tempted to throw in politics there because, you know, again, speaking of continuums, there's some kind of continuum between personal psychology and, and you know, where it breaks into politics. But that was the big battle all the time was, was how do you convince the client to do what they've actually asked you for? You know, how do, how do you, how do you read behind kind of the, the, the wish list and, and get a sense of what they're really asking for and then engage them in that kind of a partnership so that together you can deliver what they want. And that all comes down to psychology. It's just you know, mm -hmm. inev inevitable um, and, and, and almost like clockwork. Um, so that, that, makes, that makes total sense to me. Yeah, that's actually, that's maybe a good segue to a, a piece I know you wanted to talk about, which was the watershed level thinking. I don't know. Yeah, let's, you... let, let's, let's move back out of the client out of the local yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and have a look at the watershed because um, I don't hear individual practitioners and I don't hear individual practices speak often enough as if they're aware of the need to address things on a watershed scale. So may, maybe let's start with your definition of, of what a watershed actually is and then what mm -hmm. that what that implies in terms of the the focus of the work yeah yeah and if we if we can weave our way that way part of the reason i was saying there's a segue there is um to your point about the client right and how do you how do you relate to a client in a way that we're kind of unsticking 
you know, whatever they came to the project with thinking they wanted, we're kind of getting that assumption unstuck and kind of expanding that thinking that this watershed piece really relates to that for me. Um, so maybe, maybe we'll wind there once we've kind of uh, unfolded the watershed concept a little bit more. Okay, let's, um, let's, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> so the definition of um, watershed in my mind and um, Others also use the concept of life shed, which I think is, is valuable to be able to hold both of those. It's not just about water, um, but it's the area, if, if I'm thinking about here, the Connecticut River in Western Massachusetts, uh, well, running through Vermont into Massachusetts and Connecticut, um, the watershed of that river is, if we imagine that every drop of rain that fell on the ground rolled right down that right over the surface and into that river which you know we know is an oversimplification every inch every square inch that a rain droplet that falls rolls into that river is that river's watershed so it's kind of like the funnel that feeds that river it would be like the simplest version of a watershed um is that clear enough I can't answer for the listeners, of course, but <laughs> I, I think it's a pretty good shot. I, it's, I, I'd agree with yeah. that. I, I definitely agree yeah. with that. Yeah. It's like a really complex funnel that's covered in trees and animals and soil and fungus, uh, including humans. Um, <laughs> so, and, and so, so give us a, give us a little, um, just a little shot at the life shed since we're, we're still shedding. Yeah, yeah. So life shed in that context is also so I think there's an interesting concept here, which is just I'm just going to keep making this more and more complex, which is that um, a watershed is is one valuable delineation in that it a lot of the life cycles are kind of co-evolved to that pattern. Um, and at the same time, it is an artificial boundary that we're still creating, right? So um, the, the water that falls in that watershed is also evapotranspirating out of the trees and creating rain clouds that possibly, you know, move inland over another watershed and, and then release as rain again. So, so as much as we're kind of drawing a line around these places, it, it is a part of, it's nested within larger systems. And I think the life shed piece there is that a lot of watershed thinking, the his history of it is from a uh, anthropocentric or a human oriented um, kind of water systems design perspective. And so if we only use the language of watershed, we're ignore we have the risk of ignoring um, everything that makes that watershed vital. So that watershed, you know, is not just an aluminum foil that's funneling water into a river. That watershed's health is as dependent on those, on the fungus that's breaking down woody matter and turning it into a soil that can hold water in flood scenarios. Or it's at that watershed's vitality is as dependent on the birds that pick up seeds and move them across that watershed to a recently cleared forest and allow that forest to reestablish so that it's increasing the water holding capacity of that landscape. Um, so so it's, it really is a life shed. It's, it's just, we've tended to call it watershed because of the focus for human reasons was on designing 
the water systems in that place. Which touches back nicely on the comments you made about learning to deal with complexity or, or as you said, kind of messiness, you know, in, in the design process. And, and I know, you know, some years ago, a designer friend and I in Ireland um, were trying to find different ways to express the, the, the distinction of the design profession to I think we were speaking with city councilors and you know some other potential clients and 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 one of the things that um, we came down to was designers are 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 comfortable with chaos <laughs> and we help navigate complexity and so, mm -hmm. and 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 I think this kind of messiness I mean creativity is messy right. You know, it's like, I mm -hmm. think of like a, a potter's studio, you know, or, or, or making a baby for that matter. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a messy process. Life is really messy. And, um, you know, the, the sense that a watershed is not actually something we can draw a tight line around. It's, you know, there's, there's a limit to the utility of being able mm -hmm. to describe it as, you know, within these boundaries. Mm -hmm. Right, because the moment yeah. we, the, you know, the moment we step away from that, we find not only has the bird flown to the next watershed with a seed, but you know, mm -hmm. underground the, the you know the, the fungal network has also branched and gone over the crest of the hill, so it's mm -hmm. now going downhill into the next stream shed. <laughs> and those damn humans can't be contained. <laughs> yeah, you said you said something the last time we talked, which which um, I really like. Um, in terms of you know taking a watershed perspective and in terms of regenerative agriculture or whatever other terminology we, we might choose to try to pin down what we mean when we talk about regenerative um, but that you know sometimes these it's more useful to ask really good and provocative questions than to just kind of lay out an answer or a definition and the question that, that mm -hmm. you asked um, or you you kind of put on the table last time we spoke which really struck me was what is the agriculture that heals the water cycle so you know there's a lot of as, as you said or you know a little while ago there's there's a lot of in, of, of different definitions for what re regenerative agriculture might be and some of those include things like carbon farming um, with the caveats that you laid out, you know, about, about being more precise about what we really mean when we, when we say these things and, and the, the nature of the impact we're trying to achieve. Um, and I think for the lay public, by the time there's any kind of general agreement on the terminology around regenerative, we'll probably have moved to another term. Um, but I, I really like that agriculture that heals the water cycle. That seems really, really fundamental. Could you mm -hmm. say a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so a really valuable piece of, I'll, I'll just start here because this is the, if you want to know more, go read here. <laughs> a really valuable piece of this thinking for me was reading the work of, I believe, Water for Climate, 
Um, so this is the gr a group largely out of Slovakia. Um, one of the authors is Michael Krawczyk, um, which um, these are the guys. So, these, these are the guys who who are now setting up basically to consult and design around actually bringing rain back. Exactly. Bringing yeah. rain back and an acknowledgement that um, increased vegetation, particularly uh, perennial or tree uh, vegetation, actually is cooling the surface of the planet. Um, and we can, we can see that at a localized scale. Um, because what, what, you're, what you're creating is a situation in which instead of the sun heating the ground, it's evaporating water out of that, those plants. And so the energy transfer is instead of being um, observed as um, kind of heating, you know, just like just like when you're sitting and sun tanning, instead you're sitting under a shady umbrella that's evaporating water into the atmosphere, which becomes rain in that place. So when I think of an agriculture that's um, healing the hydrologic cycle, there there are a few examples I can use of kind of how we can. Um, uh, would it be helpful here, Eric, maybe you can guide me a little bit. Would it be helpful here to talk about like specific strategies or would you rather that I'm just kind of speaking conceptually about what we're talking about? I, of course, want you to do both. Okay. I'll see how much of both I can do. Yeah. Well, how, how, um, about, how about spending another minute or so on the kind of the conceptual part and then drilling down into strategies and tools? Okay. Yeah, sure. So conceptually, um, what we're talking about is that we know, and I would love it if one of your listeners can find a watershed where this isn't true, it'd be really helpful. I'm, I'm curious if I'm missing one, but we know that the places in which humans are endeavoring in agriculture, that when they are thriving, have healthy fungal systems, health, healthy bacterial systems, they have animals that are integrated into these places, both on farm and off. They have annual plants, much of the herbaceous plants that we've come to think of as, as farms, um, and they have perennials. Um, and so when I'm thinking about an agriculture that has a healthy water cycle, just broad conceptually, I'm trying to understand in that specific place, what are those plants and animals that have been bacteria and fungus that have co-evolved to thrive in that place together. And what does a human managed system look like in that place that is producing yields that can provide for thriving humans as much as thriving the, the millions or billions of other organisms in that place. Um, and I believe over, the, over time, if we design through that lens, humans are capable of creating uh, that, that level of integration in a place. Um, and, and humans have done that um, in, within our cultural or our long history. Um, they haven't done it with 7 billion people on the planet um, across the entire globe. But um, I hold the belief, which is a big assumption, that we are capable of doing that, even with our current global population. 
Um, Does that answer it, it conceptually for you? Yeah, it, it's, it strikes me that this touches back on place. Mm -hmm. Because the, the examples I can think of uh, where that complexity was integrated into the human um, management and the, and, the, and the human economy have all had a very local appreciation because you can't know a place, you know, if you're just skipping over it. Like mm -hmm. you need to dwell in it to know it. And, and if, and mm -hmm. if you, don't, you don't know it, then you can't really manage it uh, empathetically and intelligently and, and both are necessary to do that well. Um, but yeah, I think, I can think, I, you know, I just add a, yeah. An addendum to that. So yeah. I, yes, yes, it is place. And I, I know that there are some listeners who might hear that and think that you're solely advocating for bioregionalism and like only by local. And I, just to be clear, these, the cultures that I believe you're referencing that have achieved that level of kind of connection to their place and designing for it, were also parts of cross-continental trade networks across hundreds of nations. Um, it, even if we just look in the American context, like pre-Columbian American context, right? So, so I just think it's important to, it was both place-oriented and multicultural and multinational. Yes, obviously, well, maybe it's not obvious, but it should be obvious, because when we say local, we don't mean isolated. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. local I, is I, it, I is integrated. It be, yeah, I would love it if that were obvious to everyone, but I don't. So far, I've found that it's not necessarily. Yeah, so so yeah. worth making worth making the points again. So so let's let's talk for a few minutes about some of the strategies that that you find really useful, or at least are interesting to uh, you know to explore. And then maybe yeah. look at a, f a few tools too. Yeah. So, um, in particular, um, I tend to look to um, what in the U.S. is called agroforestry, and in depending on your glo global context, is also called agroforestry. So, systems that are integrating trees into kind of um, somewhat conventional cropping patterns. So things like alley cropping or, or, or tree intercropping where you're doing uh, either strips of pasture or annual crops uh, between uh, evenly spaced tree rows um, or um, silvopasture where you're, um, there are two forms of silvopasture. There's integrating animals into existing forest and then there's integrating trees or tree crops or timber crops into existing pasture. Um, I'm much more interested in the latter, um, just particularly here in the temperate context. Um, there's a lot more complexity and challenge and damage and risk that comes when we're integrating animals into um, healthy forest systems. Um, so those are, those are two examples of agroforestry practices. Um, if you go to, if you search USDA agroforestry, there's a whole list of the practices here in the U.S. that are considered agroforestry. And, and all of those, again, are referencing um, ancient practices of integrating these different types of crops into the same system. So th those are strategies that I look to. 
and think about how can we design them. Another important one when we're talking about uh, watershed health is riparian buffers and uh, riparian meaning riverside. So uh, creating vegetative buffers along riverways um, to reduce erosion, to actually keep those rivers cooler and so that they have viable habitat for the animals that live in the water. Um, those riparian buffers also are really important as buffers from um, agrochemicals and nutrient runoff from farm sites, so preventing them from getting into the waterways. Um, so those are those are three specific practices. And the the fourth the fourth piece I'll talk about, which is also kind of starting to get into uh, tools, um, is we've been working on how can we use GIS-based analysis to um, start thinking about where can those practices be implemented in, um, in agriculture in different watersheds. Um, and, and that actually came largely out of um, our work with brands. It came out of two things. My desire to, and we'll, maybe we'll put a bookmark in this, my desire to create a Northeast US uh, chestnut industry and wanting to use GIS to analyze where those trees can be planted. Um, and then also our work with food brands mostly um, who want to be investing in regenerative agriculture and for the most part we're focused on annual crops and so we wanted to create a GIS analysis that they could use to ask to use multiple layers around uh, soil type and erosion risk and land use patterns and vegetation patterns to start to analyze where can these agroforestry practices that are inclusive of perennials and trees um, be implemented within a watershed um, with a certain level of strategic thinking to start to heal that watershed. That was a mouthful. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'll just take a break there and there's okay. some questions that would be helpful to get into. Um, well, we promised people we'd talk more about the chestnuts. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 it, I think what you're doing with the GIS makes makes a huge amount of sense, and um, I yeah. imagine, yeah, it, 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 one of the things I, I like about the referencing of that is not only is you know, are we talking about a useful tool clearly and its application, but as we're talking to different back people from different backgrounds in this in this podcast series and trying to get a clear idea of just, you know, what are the different angles people are coming at this from? Um, tech is really important. And mm -hmm. I, don't th I don't think in most people's minds, like in most lay people's minds, I, I don't think there's an obvious connection between agriculture and technology. There's maybe a more kind of understandable link between technology and addressing big topics, you know, uh, you know, with big data, even, you know, such as, such as drought, such as other impacts of climate change, such as, um, you know, you could see how, you know, maybe space mapping of forest loss as, as is being used quite, um, quite well in portions of, uh, tracking portions of the Amazon, um, Areas in Indonesia where the palm oil plantations are destroying forests and that sort of thing. You can kind of see where levels of technology are actually making 
this a lot more visible and understandable to those who have concerned themselves with it. But I don't know that technology leaps to mind very quickly for people when they think about their region um, and mm -hmm. restoring carbon cycles, you know, in, in terms of, as you say, you know, what, what are the optimum places for locating these plantations? Uh, what, are, what are the lands which are going to be most positively responsive to things like an agroforestry or an alley cropping uh, kind of transformation? So mm -hmm. let's segue from that into chestnuts because they're one of my favorite topics. <laughs> tell us what you tell us yeah. what you're doing, and, and 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 also just like you know, where did the spark come from to 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 start doing that? Yeah, <laughs> we're getting into a lot of conversations that I could riff on for a few hours. So I have to watch myself and try and keep it to you know 90 seconds. <laughs> yeah, what, what, what we'll do is what we'll do is is later on we'll schedule a, a few other podcasts where we can go into some of these with the. The appropriate level of depth okay. and, de and detail. Great, great. So chestnuts for me, really early on as I was getting into this work and learning from some great teachers, I remember my, my now friend and colleague Connor Stedman being a teacher for me about five years ago and talking about you know, what are the, the, the tree crops that can start to replace some of our staple ingredients in our diet, in our food system. Um, and he, I remember him highlighting hazelnuts and chestnuts and, and chestnuts, for whatever reason, chestnuts landed with me more than hazelnuts. And so when I, when I say a staple crop, I'm thinking of, you know, um, starches like potatoes and wheat and rice and corn and even, um, livestock feed, um, you know, a, a huge percentage of U.S. agriculture goes to feeding animals, um, so that humans can later eat them. Um, and so chestnuts, really interestingly for me, are, are a starch crop. They're, you know, we, I think of tree nuts, ten, tend to think of them as proteins and fat heavy, but chestnut is actually really more of a carbohydrate crop. Um, so it is closer to those, you know, potato, corn, wheat, uh, rice flour. And it has a multi-millennia history as a food source for peoples from North America, all across the Mediterranean band, through Turkey, into China, Korea, Japan. I mean, it's this huge band wrapping around the world has used chestnuts as a staple crop uh, for thousands of years. So it's, this is not a new idea. Um, in the US context, really specifically, we had a blight that was introduced here, a fungus that was brought um, from, I believe it was actually Japanese trees. You, you see Chinese some places, Japanese some places, but I believe it was Japanese trees in the mid 1800s. And starting in about the early 1900s, just about every chest, American chestnut tree, so Castanea dentata, was wiped out in the US. And I see that there, that was kind of a perfect convergence actually, as the chestnut industry was becoming more of an agricultural industry. Um, in the U.S. that all of the trees were wiped out. And subsequently, we had the evolution, the kind of the green revolution and the growth of industrial agriculture. And so we ended, we got to this paradigm where a crop that isn't going to have significant yields for seven to 10 years 
wasn't really viable in the short-term thinking of industrial agriculture. And so in the past hundred years, while, while there has been a bit of research on how do we breed a chestnut, um, a blight-resistant American chestnut that can help with forest restoration uh, here in the Eastern United States, there hasn't been as much work. There's been some really good niche work, but not as much work on creating an industry around chestnut, commercial chestnut production for the use of nuts and nut flour. Um, so there's about 4,000 acres in the U.S. right now compared to 80 million acres of corn. Um, and so my work right now here in the Northeast is establishing farms, um, kind of identifying the best seedling sources um, from around the country that are going to be blight resistant, but also really commercially viable for farmers and orchardists to be growing. Um, and really importantly here, what we're trying to design in the Northeast, and we have an awesome demonstration site at UMass right now, University of Massachusetts, is, is chestnuts as an agroforestry crop. So integrated systems that allow farmers to be um, yielding revenue and um, valuable products out of that system while the chestnuts are maturing. So, for example, right now at UMass, we're doing a demonstration site with sheep grazing in between the chestnut rows, um, talking to some folks locally about doing hay and chestnut work. Um, there's uh, my colleagues in the Hudson Valley are doing work where they're uh, slowly bringing chestnuts into a mature apple orchard and thinning the apples and also grazing sheep. So, so it's, it's a big, big regional project. There's great work in the Ithaca region. Um, there's a big regional project of bringing in not only this crop, but using it also in the conversation of creating these integrated multi-yield agricultural systems that are, again, he healing that water cycle. We're going to take a break now. So stay tuned, we'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind and Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind and Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind and Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind and Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M-I-N-D-A-N-D-M-E-D-I-A.com. And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise. Today, I'm chatting with Russell Wallach from TerraGenesis in Amherst, Massachusetts. Um, I think we also, we ought, we ought to point out, although, although you're working primarily with um, Chinese chestnuts, right? Um, I am, yeah. Uh, not Korean or Japanese, um, but, uh, and, and I think the, um, the structure of those trees is actually more akin to, uh, say, mature apple trees than they would be to, you know, a, a forest giant as, as the original American chestnuts were. Um, I think it's important also just, just to note the, the significant devastation that happened as a result of the blight um, throughout the east, eastern forests because the chestnut tree was what you call a keystone species. 
so many other so many other um, aspects of the ecosystem and so many other uh, species uh, absolutely dependent on those chestnuts and and the bounty you know that they would release when the nuts fell um, so there's parallel as far as as far as I'm aware that there's there's parallel research happening in terms of, of as you mentioned uh, trying to bring more blight resistance into trees which are structurally uh, mm -hmm. similar to the yeah. original forest trees um, and then what, what you're working on is is more around the uh, you know the agricultural production as you say the the staple um, provision like most people in the United States maybe think about chestnuts at Christmas and Thanksgiving yeah yeah <laughs> and, and, and it's maybe it's like how do I get the peel off these things you know um, yeah. is it worth the effort and 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 you know I really appreciate you kind of laying out that we've got thousands of years of history of, of yeah. people from a, any place chestnuts grew and still grow mm -hmm entire economies based around that and an element of that can be and through your work if you're successful um, will be reintroduced into the northeast united states but there's a couple things um i want to ask you to touch on um you mentioned earlier about tree crops and i'm not sure it's obvious to most people why tree crops are significant and important yeah, sure. Um, long list. <laughs> um, <laughs> Start at the top. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and yes, thank you for noting that bit about the American chestnut work and the restoration work. Wholeheartedly agree. I see it like very clearly as a both and of I am so happy that there are people who are dedicating their lives to that work and that it's advanced a lot. Um, and it's not my particular focus. Um, I do hope to have forest land that I work with in the future that I'm integrating those trees into, um, fully on board with that, and, and it's necessary. Um, tree crops, yeah, why are they important? Um, so, um, so one really simple thing to look at um, for those of you who are interested in the carbon drawdown conversation, is the role that trees play within the carbon cycle. Um, so, for example, um, if you go and look at projectdrawdown.org, the group that did the, the hundred, the comprehensive list of basically how we get to reversing climate change, Many of the agricultural solutions in that top 30, I think it's something like five of the 11 agricultural solutions are talking about the integration of trees into agricultural systems. Um, and, and then some of the even non-agricultural uses are things like reforestation um, and avoided deforestation. So, so that, that's one lens to go look at it through and, and kind of like a, a, quick, a quick and dirty on why they're important to the carbon cycle is that they are, uh, uh, I won't say permanent, because we know that nothing is permanent, but they are long-term root systems uh, within an ecosystem. So that tree, as it grows above ground, is quite literally breathing in carbon and converting that into its own biomass. So that the, the formation of a tree is, is fixing that carbon semi-permanently in that tree. And it's actually then sending carbon in the form of 
uh, basically sugars out of its root system, out of its really deep growing root system, much deeper than kind of our, our, our garden vegetables uh, grow into the ground and sharing those sugars with the soil life. So with the, the bacteria and fungus in that soil. And so it's actually kind of um, a, a pump, if you will, of all of the energy from above the surface level of the soil into the ground. And so it's, it's helping to create that vital soil life, which supports kind of everything that, that we see as we walk around our ecosystem. Um, so, so that in turn is, is storing a lot of carbon in the ground. So even just from a carbon cycle, but also that permanent root system, that long-term root system is um, creating a more resilient structure to that, to that soil and to that whole land. So when, for example, you have a major rain event, what happens is there's less erosion because you essentially have this, this mesh of, of root system holding that soil in place. So particularly from an agricultural perspective, um, you know, one of, the, one of the biggest kind of uh, dark marks <laughs> of uh, our industrial agricultural system is that we're washing away the topsoil out of our agricultural systems into our waterways. So simultaneously kind of creating deserts on the land and um, uh, areas in our oceans uh, and bays that are void of life um, because of that. So, so they're reducing erosion, they're fixing carbon, um, they're creating biodiversity that otherwise wouldn't exist. So habitat for birds who move seeds around the planet, for the insects that prey on what we've come to call pests in our agricultural systems. So, so some of these like parasitic insects that um, prey on the insects that we want to avoid in our agricultural systems, their habitat for our pollinators. Um, and then, as we said earlier, they're crucial in our hydrologic cycle to um, trees absorb water into them and then breathe it back out. And um, so one, one really, great stat coming out of that water for climate research is that roughly 50 to 60 percent of our rainfall over land wouldn't occur without vegetation, particularly without trees. So said another way, only 40 percent of the rain that falls on land is, is evaporation from the ocean that's moving then over the continents. The rest of it is the recycling of, of rain through our trees. Um, so to me, that's, that one is maybe the biggest deal um, because without that, we, we really have no human and most of other life on this planet um, without those trees. I, I love this riffing that, that is possible speaking with you. Um, it strikes me, you know, uh, sticking just for a second with the rain for climate folks and and, and one of the beauties i one of the listeners like if, if this is at all intriguing to you i really encourage you um have a look at the website for rain for climate i'll put i'll put a bunch of links below the podcast when we when we publish this um one of the beautiful things that they've done with their website and, and with their thinking and with their explanation is the way in which they have brought physics and biology together so trans, 
apparently mm. and and and, yeah. and simply you know and we can now see through through the, the the way they've been able to to lay this out for us that there's physics involved in the pressure gradients created by evapotranspiration as the trees you know evaporate water from their crowns they're actually changing the pressure um, overhead the forests so that it creates a, a draw that can bring clouds in and mm -hmm. and and when you think about how poetically or indigenously or traditionally um, different peoples have spoken about how the, the trees call the rain. And then we can now see that this is literally true, I think is one of the beautiful moments of our era. Um, and and, and yeah. much, much, much needed. If folks wanted to take um, a deeper dive into no, I'm going to hold that question for a second. I, uh, one more comment, that, <laughs> one more comment um, that just popped up as you were speaking. I realized that another Russell um, actually turned me on in the first place to the whole thing about tree crops. And it's when you mentioned this concept of them being more or less permanent that I remembered the title of his book. <laughs> this man, yeah. this man, J. Jay Russell, Russell Smith. Smith in 1929. Yeah. He worked for the U.S. Department of Agriculture and he saw that converting um, the management of the Appalachian region to tree crops would solve the economic problems as well as the ecological problems and bring health back to the region. And of course they ignored him, but he did publish all his findings in a very, very provocative book, which has been published and republished and republished and republished since 1929. And it's simply called Tree Crops, A Permanent Agriculture. Now, having said that, I wanna ask you if folks wanna take a deeper dive into the possibilities of chestnut cultivation, where would you recommend they start to inform themselves? Well, um, <laughs> or should well, they just contact off, you directly? Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. I was gonna say, first off, please feel free to just reach out to me, Eric. I think you're gonna share some contact info. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll put all that down, but you can say it now anyway as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, Russell at terra-genesis.com is the best way to reach me. So T-E-R-R-A-G-E-N-E-S-I-S. -E -E I guess I should probably spell my name just in case. Some people use two, uh, one L. So Russell is R-U-S-S-E-L-L. So R-U-S-S-E-L-L at terragenesis.com. And um, in terms of chestnuts, so in the U.S., um, the Chestnut Growers Association is kind of the main group. There's also the Northern Nut Growers Association. Um, a really valuable kind of information hub for me over the past year has become actually a Facebook group called, I believe it's called All Things Castanea. Uh, Castanea being the genus of which chestnut is a part. And where we got, um, the, word, and where we got the word castanets. Yes, yeah, and the namesake of uh, many regions in the world, uh, the, those regions that are kind of chestnut forests, like uh, Castanizia in, in Corsica. Um, yeah, so, um, or if your last name is Chastain, you're named after the chestnut tree. Um, 
So yeah, that's actually all things Castanea is that Facebook group is a really helpful resource. Um, and on there, there are some, you know, there are people who know way more about the breeding side of things than me or um, just, you know, all sorts of folks and, and they're happy for you to post questions. Um, but I'm happy to redirect people if they come with specific questions or, or vague wonderings. Um, and, and if they have a piece it, of it, land, it, and if they have a piece of land that oh. they'd like like some help designing and 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 moving into a, more of a agroforestry kind of production, come to you yeah, as well, right? Please reach out to me. Yeah, and it totally is open. Um, you know, it's it's a minimum of five acres, I'd say, is what we're looking at for these integrated systems. But um, cost-wise, there are all sorts of creative ways to finance these projects. Um, our, our good friends at Propagate Ventures are doing a lot of great work around financing that um, these types of projects. So happy to connect you to resources or support you in the design process. Um, can, Eric, do we have time for me to just plug another tree crop that we're working with and how that relates yeah. to the watershed work? Yeah, yeah. go for um, it. Yes, so we have a really exciting young project that's starting off in our partnership with Kiss the Ground out of Los Angeles. Um, and they brought us into a conversation with a number of brands who are sourcing almonds from California. And this comes out of some of the research that my colleagues, uh, Andrew Langford and Leora Adler have done up in the Cape Valley of California. And, you know, almonds have in the U.S. been really demonized for the water consumption that almond farmers um, rely upon. And historically, almonds have been dry farmed, or, meaning farmed without irrigation or farmed with much less irrigation. Um, and we're starting to ask the question through this study, what is the way that almonds could be planted? So, for example, on contour, on hillsides with um, a vegetative understory um, in order to start to rehydrate the landscape. So what is basically what is a form of almond farming in California that's healing the watershed rather than uh, sucking it dry? And I find I think this conversation is going to where it goes is going to be really exciting. Uh, we're currently fundraising for that design process um, to really be able to build out a 10 year study. Um, and uh, Lauren Tucker the, from Kiss the Ground is leading that uh, process and we're working closely with her and this is a place where we're planning to implement that GIS analysis to really look at the whole, uh, the whole of California and understand from a really uh, large perspective how can almonds play a role in healing this landscape. Um, so anyone who's interested in that again, please reach out to me. And um, yeah, I'm really excited to see where that goes because uh, currently the state of California is spending tens of billions of dollars on water infrastructure that um, as far as I can tell is not going to last decades in terms of its resilience if we continue to consume in the way we are. Um, and so creating a, a more resilient solution to, to that place and, and healing it uh, is pretty exciting to me. That's awesome. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question before we go. 
and then you know we'll be in contact and we'll we'll set up a few more podcasts a week as i said so we can really develop a few of these topics um, at the level of detail that they they merit um so this is a really open question um if you cast your mind 20 years down the road from now what does success look like and i'm not asking you so much about success in terms of a business sense but in mm -hmm. terms of the, the you know, we're all part of, of what we hope is going to be a really significant transformation. Uh, what, what we realize must be a significant transformation. Um, but from your perspective, if things go in a good direction, what might look different in 20 years? It's meant to be provocative. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So one piece at a personal level is um, just a, a really big part of my development continues to be me getting to know the place I live in and really being able to see it for like see it in the way I see the people around me, you know, to see its health and to know it in that way, like have that level of intimacy. I, I see that as part of my success. Um, and I, I think that will also come with a lot of kind of business success on, on the land and, you know, achieving, you know, goals around chestnut adoption and things like that. But I think that as a metric is going to be really helpful for me over the next 20 years. Um, the other piece I, that I think will be helpful for me to judge how successful kind of this work, which I'm a part of, to, to judge whether it's been successful is um, kind of the lens with which people are making decisions. Um, I think I'm, I'm constantly surprised by when I'm in certain conversations um, at you know, various conferences around how do, how do we regenerate the planet or how do we fight climate change and all, all this language that there's still a, a really, I think a, a young willingness for us to designed for the health of a system bigger than ourselves or our family. Um, and that continues to be a place where I want to, I'm kind of in my work trying to help people shift is to consider something bigger and something bigger that you're a part of, you know, it's not, it's not pulling yourself out of it or disassociating, but to really be, when we think of risk, think of the risk of, at the watershed level and, and, how are we mitigating that risk rather than what I think we all, a lot of us, myself included, still fall back on, which is mitigating risk to self and family and kind of, um, and, and I will acknowledge that different ones of us are in very different positions to be able to do that work and ask those questions. And um, I fully acknowledge that I am, very privileged in the opportunities I get to do that work and ask those questions. Um, and I hope that in 20 years, we're in a place where more of us um, kind of are, are able to do that. And especially those who have the kind of financial and other resources to be doing that and having a major impact. Beautiful. Um, I'm going to wrap it there just so that we don't go way out of our normal hour. Um, 
This has been really, 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 it's been a wonderful conversation, Russell. I really appreciate it. And I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, as I said, to expanding out in, in, in a few more calls. Um, I've been speaking with my friend, Russell Wallach, who is based in Amherst, Massachusetts, and um, is with Terra Genesis design firm. Um, there will be, as I said, we'll put some links down below so you can get in touch with Russell so you can hear more about some of the topics we've we've touched on, the rain for climate, um, pterogenesis itself, chestnut uh, associations of various kinds, um, and whatever else we decide at the last minute might be really intriguing for you and related to this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks again, Russell, and I'll talk to you really soon. All right. Thanks, Eric. Okay. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of designing paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.